Uh, well, some of the more observant amongst you may have noticed that it's, uh, it's a new year. don't know if you caught that in the last few days. So I want to ask you this. At the start of a new year, where do you find your thoughts going? Uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about? What are you pondering? Many of us, of course, we look back on the year that's been, don't we? So we recall the things that have happened. We think about the things that we've done. Uh, and most of us look forward to the year that's coming. We anticipate plans that we have, things that might take place. We look forward to the things that we'll do. Uh, And in all of that, I think you'll agree, it's sort of inevitable that our thoughts turn inwards, don't they? Uh, Maybe maybe some of us, uh, that's a negative thing. We we tend to fixate on our, our weaknesses. Maybe we look back on the things that we didn't do last year. Uh, the goals that we just never quite reached. Uh, Maybe we're discouraged by what feels like it's unchanged since this time last year. You know, the same struggles, the same conflicts, the same unfulfilled desires. And and maybe we look forward to the year ahead with um, not a lot of hope. We doubt we'll see much progress. We can be drawn into discouragement, can't we? I'm sure we've all been there. Uh, Or maybe, on the other hand, we consider our accomplishments as we look back on last year, uh, the things that we achieved and the progress that we made. Uh, Maybe you love to replay in your mind those moments from last year where you kind of succeeded. Maybe it was uh, a good job done at work, a project completed or a big purchase made, maybe really great results at school. Uh, And then we can look forward with big expectations too, can't we? We can set big goals, make big plans, and we can be drawn into self-confidence, can't we? Uh, In either of those cases, whether in disappointment and doubt or or self-confidence, what do we do? We we study and we think about our actions, don't we? Uh, We analyse, we assess, we evaluate, we examine, our thoughts are turned inward and we ponder our works. Now, a healthy amount of self-reflection is a good thing, isn't it? But I'm sure you know as well as I do that a gaze that is turned constantly inwards never ultimately brings life and contentment and joy, does it? Uh, The world tells us that there are problems out there and you've got to find the solution in here somewhere. Somehow work up a solution within yourself. But it doesn't work, does it? It does not work. People who are always looking in on themselves are, I think, in the end, uh, defeated and empty and kind of withered. Well, the author of Psalm 111 would instead say this to us this evening, ponder and delight in the wondrous works of the Lord. Turn your gaze upwards. Think less about what you have done or what you plan to do. Think about what the Lord himself has done, his works, his deeds, and his actions. So that is really all that I hope to do with you for the next few minutes as we look through this psalm 
Let's just stop and think about the God who works. Well, if you take a look at uh, Psalm 111 and just have a quick scan through some of the language, you immediately get, I think, a sense of the scale of God's work. And to do that, particularly, look at the adjectives that the author uses. Uh, He says that the works of the Lord are great in verse 2. They're full of splendor and majesty in verse 3. They are wonders or wondrous works in verse 4. They're done with power, verse 6. And verse 8, they are eternally enduring. They last. The point is clear, isn't it? The works of God, they're not small, they're not trivial. They are done on a grand scale. I think you get a sense of the breadth of God's works in this psalm too. Uh, It's an acrostic poem, this psalm, which means each line begins with a, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I kind of wonder whether the psalmist is maybe saying this is the A to Z of God's works. His works are comprehensive. Well, what about the specific things that the author calls to mind? Take a look at verse 2. He says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Uh, There's some different Hebrew words in this psalm translated, depending on your translation, works or deeds. This one here, uh, very often in the psalms, it refers to the things that God has made. So Psalm 8, which Sue Ellen referred to a little bit earlier, is a great example. You'd probably know this one, uh, the verse which says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. Same word. And, of course, uh, the work of God in the physical universe is one of the clearest evidences we have of what he's capable of, isn't it? Uh, All of creation is the product of God's craftsmanship. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? From the massive to the microscopic, God has crafted this planet and this universe. Uh, The star that we call the sun, the closest star, it's 150 million kilometres from Earth. Its diameter is 1.4 million kilometres across. The temperature at its core is 15 million degrees Celsius. That star, it's, it's the product of God's working. Uh, I was reading yesterday about this tiny insect to bring the scale back down. Uh, I wrote down its Latin name. I won't, I won't try and pronounce it for you. It's a little wasp. Um, and it's just like any other wasp that you might know. It's good, you know, like a body and legs all kind of fit together really precisely. But this wasp, it measures uh, two-tenths of a millimetre in length. Tiny and put together with just... Mind-blowing precision. That little creature is the product of God's working in this universe. Uh, I was interested to read, actually, that verse 2 of this psalm is written above the entrance uh, to the Cavendish Physics Laboratory in Cambridge, Cambridge University. And I think that's fitting, isn't it? I mean, God's work in creation should absolutely inspire and underpin scientific discovery, shouldn't it? Uh, 
It absolutely should. Well, the power of God in creation, his works in creation, uh, are incredible. They're incredible. But I think the Psalms and the Bible more generally never really speak of creation as the ultimate or the central example of God's work. Uh, So turn to Job chapter 26 if you're able to flick there quickly, otherwise just listen on. Um, in In chapter 26 of Job, he's speaking to his friends about the majesty of God, particularly as it is seen in creation, particularly as it is seen in nature. Uh, and if you scan through chapter 26 there, you'll see Job is just he's kind of grasping for language to adequately convey the grandeur of God in creation. He's just sort of struggling to find the words to describe this raw, this unhindered power of God in nature. And yet, in a verse that I just love, he concludes like this at the end of that chapter. He says, as he thinks about all these grand works, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? See, all the power and the fury and majesty and intricacy of the physical universe, it's just the outer fringe of God's work. It's just a whisper of his power. And indeed, I think you'll see that the author of Psalm 111, he goes beyond the work of God in creation too, doesn't he? Uh, He goes deeper. The psalmist's real focus, I think, is on the way that God has worked within his creation. The author, he wants to point us to the acts of God in dealing with humanity and particularly in dealing with his chosen people. I reckon this idea probably becomes most clear uh, in verse 5. He says, He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Verse 6, He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Look at the verbs that the author uses to point us to what God has done. He provides food. He remembers his covenant promises. He shows people his power. He gives his people land. You can see what he's doing, can't you? He he wants these Israelites to cast their minds back to the great and the powerful ways that God has worked tangibly, visibly, practically for their good. And the reader of this psalm, or the singer of this psalm, is meant to recall the way that God provided manna in the desert. Uh, We're meant to remember the way that God heard the cry of the Israelites in Egypt in slavery. We're meant to remember the way that he powerfully brought them out. We're meant to remember the way that he brought them into the promised land, aren't we? Uh, Verse 7 as well, you'll see, introduces another great work of God in history. It says, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. His precepts, or we might say his instructions, his law, they're established forever, verse 8. So the psalmist here is pointing us 
to that pivotal work that God has done in communicating with humanity, speaking to this world. That is a a loving and a powerful and a decisive act, isn't it? Well, I think verse 9 kind of brings all of this together in summary. He says, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. That's the summary, covenant redemption. God has delivered out of slavery into freedom. That's redemption. And it was an act that was grounded in his solemn commitment, a loving commitment to his people. That's covenant. So the psalmist all through this psalm, I think, wants us to actively remember and ponder and study the things that God has done. It's a really common theme all throughout the Old Testament, actually. Um, Before the Israelites were walking into the promised land, which God had given them, uh, Moses gives something a bit like a farewell sermon to them. And just like the psalmist, what he does is he points them to all of God's works. Uh, He pleads with them not to think that it's their own strength that has brought about their deliverance, but it's the mighty work of God. Uh, in, In chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, Moses says this. He says, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds. Do you know that verse uh, we read from Psalm 8 where uh, David describes the sun and the moon as the work of God's, what, his, just his fingers, just his fingers. And Moses says here the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt is the work of God's hand and his mighty powerful arm. You see, the majesty of creation doesn't compare to the way that God has kind of exerted himself in delivering that nation into freedom. It's like he's he's rolled up his sleeves and got to work and powerfully exerted himself for that undeserving nation. See, Moses in this sermon just keeps pointing to what God has done. He keeps saying, remember, 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 he wants to refresh their memories, you see. He wants to lift their gaze to see the works of God. And I wonder if we need to refresh our memories too, perhaps. As something of a motivation to that, uh, here's something that I think makes that endeavour, the study of God's works, the pondering of God's works, the remembrance of God's works. Here's something I think that makes that really exciting. It's this, that in all of that, it's not the works themselves that are the ultimate focus. I think we see in this psalm and through Scripture more broadly that the goal is never just to know the works of God, but it's to know the God who works. Not just to know these deeds but to know the God who is capable of them. And I think that sort of makes sense to us at a human level, doesn't it? Um, it would be a bit weird if I was to say to my parents, hey, you know, you uh, when I was growing up, 
little boy, you cared for me, you fed me, clothed me, educated me, gave me a, a house to live in. Um, that's great. But, you know, it wouldn't have really mattered if it was just someone else random doing those things for me. Like, it was just the actions themselves that I cared about. That would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Um, no, it was, it was through what they did that I came to know my parents, to know their character, to love them for that. And do you see how this psalm shows us the character of God through his deeds? Take a look at verse 3, for example. It says, Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. So you see, the psalmist, he doesn't only talk about the majestic nature of God's works. He wants us to remember that God's works are a righteous because God is righteous. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That God, he's not just powerful. It's not just raw, unhindered power. No, he's also pure and perfect and good. Uh, If you look at verse 4, you'll see the psalmist, he calls these works wonders. But then he particularly points us to the fact that they reveal God to to be gracious and compassionate. In verse 7, we're told that the works of his hands are faithful and just. This is the amazing thing, isn't it? That it is largely through what he does that we know who God is. We see the way that he provides food and we know that he's compassionate. And we see the way he rescues Israel and we know he's faithful to his promises. We look at the way that he gives his law and we know that he's a God who cares deeply about justice. And I think that is exactly God's intention. All throughout the Old Testament, we see him as a God who wants to be known. He wants to be known as the one who works powerfully for his people. Uh, So if you want to flick really quickly to uh, Exodus chapter 6, this is a point where God uh, is yet to rescue Israel from Egypt. But he says this through Moses to the people of Israel. This is starting at verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Do you see what he says? Not just that he will do all these great acts and not just that he will be their God, but that they will know that he is their God. When he acts to redeem this undeserving Israel, he does it in a way that makes his purposes and his character unmissable. And I think in in, uh, Psalm 111, to turn back there, Verse 9, we see the same thing, don't we? In the the climax of, of his remembrance of God's work, the author concludes like this. He says, Holy and awesome 
is his name. By his name, he means who he is. His very heart, his very person. God himself is holy and awesome. And that is why studying the works of the Lord is so critical and such an exciting pursuit. Because we see in the psalmist here that a consideration of the works of God leads him to a communion with God himself. We must know the works of God so that we will know the God who works. Now here, I, I've got to make a confession to you. When I read Psalms like this, I'm often struck by, by the sheer enthusiasm of the author in his praise and also by the depth of his communion with God. Are you often struck by that as well? I feel like my own praise and worship of God is comparatively faint and dull and, and my own communion with God feels somehow more shallow. And I think that should not be the case. That should not be the case. It shouldn't be the way because if I trace God's work forward well beyond what the psalmist knew, I've seen so much more, haven't I? I can look at so many more examples of what God has done. Uh, most centrally, if I pick up my New Testament, I can look back and I can see the work of God on earth. Uh, in John chapter 5, after Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath and gets in trouble for it, he says this in verse 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. The actions of Jesus are a continuation of the work of God. So I can look back and see the powerful work of Christ on my behalf. I can look back at the cross and I can see what that psalmist couldn't see, the precious and the pure Christ screaming in agony for me. I can see him hung with arms outstretched, totally committed to my salvation. I can see that, that lifeless corpse being filled again with breath and life through the exertion of God's power. I can see Christ ascending again to heaven where he stands right now interceding for me. I can see him at work through his spirit in the early church, gathering his people, raising up leaders, sanctifying them, creating a transformative community of grace. And in scripture, isn't this a blessing? I can look forward and to see what he will do in creating a new and perfect earth with no sin and free from the effects of sin as well. The Trinity himself, the triune God, is working to bring me that salvation. 
And of course, I can look at God's work in you, can't I? Uh, doesn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that we are God's workmanship? Just like creation has been fashioned by God, so, so you, God's redeemed people, are a product of his craftsmanship. So I can look and I can see the ways that God has opened people's eyes to see the truth of the gospel. I can see growth in so many of you. I can see the ways that he's replacing sin with purity, even in my own life. You see, if the psalmist had reasons to delight in the works of God, surely I have more. And perhaps, perhaps I just need to repent and to say, Father, forgive me for how rarely I have pondered your works, for how faint my praise has been. Well, if that's a rebuke that I need to hear, where does this passage push us positively? Where does it send us, do you think? Uh, Firstly, let me say a quick word to you if you are new to church. Maybe you're here just trying to make sense of this Christianity thing. Let me say this from this psalm. I think, sadly, so many people in this country uh, have an assumption that Christianity, just like any other religion, is a message about the way that I have to work my way into God's favour. And I just want to say to you this morning, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is, in fact, at its heart, at its core, it is the story of a God who has powerfully worked for the good of all who would repent, admit their need, and turn to him. To people who have rejected him, who have spurned his kindness, God comes and says, I am the God who will rescue. I'm the God who will redeem and forgive and renew. Jesus himself said, didn't he, that I have come not to be served but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. So if that's a new way of thinking about Christianity for you uh, this afternoon, please Come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you more. Talk to the Christian friend who brought you along. But to God's people here today, which is most of you, uh, let's come full circle to those two dangers that we began with, those dangers of excessive introspection. And I think this psalm, it has something to say to you if you are despondent, discouraged, doubtful, when you look at the unimpressive nature of your own works. If you look back on last year and you don't see many accomplishments or you look at the year ahead and you you doubt there'll be much change, to you, let this psalm turn your gaze toward the God who works, who's done great works and continues to do great things still. 
Just look again at that God who has exerted all of his might for your eternal good. And let verse 1 here be your cry this afternoon. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Let that be your cry this afternoon. I also think this psalm has something to say to those who instead can tend towards that kind of proud self-confidence as you look at your own achievements. I think we can all pretty easily drift that way, can't we? Feeling secure, so secure, or so we think, in our own achievements. Many of you, you are you're successful, you're accomplished, you're affluent, you know how to get stuff done. Let me point you to the final verse of this psalm. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So remember that um, it's not wisdom to stand in awe of your own works. It's to stand in awe of the unmatched work of God. A wise way to start this year, a very wise way, is to, to stand in humble awe of the God who works and to follow where he leads. And notice in verse 10, it's, it's his praise, it's not your works that will endure. Well, for all of you, my hope my, my hope, my prayer, is that a knowledge of the powerful works of the Lord will drive you to this kind of humble joy that doesn't depend in any way on what you find within yourself. So invest time this year. Invest time in studying the works of God. As you read your Bible, look for those things that God has done. Look for the ways that he's worked for the good of his people. Refresh your memory. Ponder those things. Study those things. Talk to other Christians about what God has done. Ask other Christians about the ways that they see God at work and known his goodness. Sometimes I think we're so embarrassed to have those conversations that just genuinely delight in what God has done. So much easier, isn't it, to talk about the footy or the weather. We should not be like that. I think as God's people, we should be quick, be eager to talk with each other about what God has done. In prayer, in prayer, boldly plead with God to act, to intervene, knowing that he is a God who works and works still. And finally, look for opportunities to sing praise to that God who works, to sing praise with others. As Sue Ellen pointed out, it's in the congregation, isn't it? It's with other believers. So look for those opportunities to sing loudly with your whole heart, verse 1, with your whole heart to the God who has worked for you. Let's pray. Father God, at the start of this year, I pray that you would fill us with a delight in your works. 
Uh, help us to know you through them, to delight in communion with you, Father. We pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen.